You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We have been in this series through the season of Easter. Easter is a season that lasts seven weeks until Pentecost, which is coming up here in two Sundays. And we call this series Living in Light of the Resurrection, Living in the Wake of Easter. Every season of the Christian year gives us an opportunity to look at the story of the world and of our lives through that lens of that season. And we are asking how the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead shapes our life as community and as individuals. So we've been discussing living with peace in light of the resurrection, living with joy in light of the resurrection, living with healing. And today I want to take things in a slightly different direction, which is living cross-culturally in light of the resurrection. All right? We are an intentionally cross-cultural church here at Grace Mosaic, from our leadership to our ministry commitments to how we endeavor to shape our work in worship and in spiritual formation through prayer and through practices. We have a commitment to the cross-cultural versus monocultural life of love together. And today, I just want to remind ourselves of these things. And I pray, maybe even go deeper in today. And at the outset, what I really want to impress upon you is that neither I nor this community can claim to be the model that we profess. In fact, what I want to leave you with today is that we, as the people of God, have to embrace a journey model of cross-cultural life from one step, from one degree to the next, meaning that we are always going to be growing up into this vision and command that the Lord has given to us to seek further transformation, to seek further healing and understanding. And with that, let me say that we believe at Mosaic that the church is, by God's design and purpose, a cross-cultural family united in the resurrected body of Jesus by the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. All right? (laughs) The church is a cross-cultural family united in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ by the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. A cross-cultural family. We might say in the eyes of the world, the church is definitely an uncommon family. Family, of course, is a beautiful and loaded word. So I'm reminded of that prevalent phrase that many of you will know. Everyone knows you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends, right? (laughs) And the impetus uh, for that quote is that, of course, sometimes family life is complicated. Can I get an amen? Sometimes we don't know how to deal with the fact that we are intimately connected with another group of people or individual people, that we have a shared history together. And that shared history might indeed involve a lot of hurt, a lot of shame, a lot of blame, anger, fear, and joy. And thus the iterations and the adaptations of the phrase that I found, you can't choose your family, but you can ignore their phone calls. (laughs) You can't choose your family, but you can choose your therapist. Woo! All right. Mm. The God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, is very interested and invested in this idea of family too. After all, God calls himself Father, And he calls us children, doesn't he? He uses this vivid and precious concept of new birth that we've been celebrating today in the liturgy already. The scripture calls Jesus the groom and his church the bride. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and said, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God. 
We call this place, of course, the church, the house of the Lord. We are baptized into one body, the body of Christ. We commune with God as a family at the Lord's table together all across the world, north, south, east, and west. And it's significant that God uses those kind of terms because it's to change the way that we, the church, think through our ultimate identity and calling in a varied and a diverse and a beautiful and a profoundly broken world. I feel that we're in, a, we're in an inflection point right now in the American church context, especially as a church intentionally pursuing cross-cultural ministry. For the last 10 years, with of course 2016 and 2020 being years of reckoning for the American church, many churches and ministries and communions have, have had to come into contact with lines of deep cultural difference, communal pain, anger over injustice, protest, and those churches' response to those moments spoke volumes about how they navigated cross-cultural realities. It was often shown that churches that were optically diverse were shown to have a profound lack of substantive diversity. When it came to power, leadership, cultural perspective over what was happening socially, politically, and culturally in the United States of America. And I think, honestly, maybe you in this room and others outside of it are asking the question, is cross-cultural church life even possible? And is it worth it? Is it what the Lord even wants from his church? And in some ways, that's completely understandable because we don't do ministry in the United States in a neutral context. Right? There's stuff happening all around us. It's often a hostile context when it comes to cultural difference. 20 years ago, the sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith famously wrote the book Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, where they broke through and studied uh, what the source of why Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Like, what's the history behind that? What's the current reality behind that? Well, for the past, you can go read that book. It's really helpful. For the past 20 years, they've been studying congregations. They've been studying Christians longitudinally with data, right? <laughs> They're sociologists. And what they've found is actually kind of depressing, to be real. They found that among, especially among white Christians and Christians of color, the situation has either remained completely stagnant or for the most part, it's gotten worse over the last 20 years. They find that the, the responses to questions that they ask are more polarized, more divided, and more emotionally charged now than they were 20 years ago. Michael Emerson talks about talking to white Christians who are good upstanding like church folk and he'll ask them something about like white privilege and all of a sudden they're cussing at him. And he's like, whoa, as a researcher, right? So that's the context in which we talk about cross-cultural ministry here. This is the conversation we're having. But what I wanna say today is that Easter is an appropriate time to seek to answer those kind of questions, to seek to respond to that cynicism and that doubt because the resurrection of Jesus' body is the first act of God's new creation. Easter points us to a renewed declaration of a new city of God, where people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation shall come, and where a wounded yet gloriously transformed king will welcome a wounded yet gloriously healed people from all over. There is woundedness and there is transformation. That's what we want to look at today. And I want to explore it by going back in time to a psalm. And you're like, a psalm? To talk about living cross-culturally in light of the resurrection? 
I just want to remind you in John 5 that Jesus said, all of Scripture points to me. Jesus said that all of the Word of God bears witness to me. And what I think we'll see today is that Psalm 87 necessarily bears witness to the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has done. I want to look at this psalm by using three P words, all right? There's a place, there's a people, and there's a party. All right? A place, a people, and a party. Somebody say amen, all right? Yeah, don't be afraid to talk back to me, all right? First, a place. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. I'm giving you a foretaste today from the book of Psalms because we're going to be in Psalms all summer in a series called Songs in the Key of Life. All right? <laughs> I owe Russ for that title. Um, and so we'll get more into the Psalms as we go, but I just basically want to say that the Psalms are the songbook of the people of God. They were intended to be sung. They were accompanied by music. They have really two purposes for the people of God in my mind. They help the people of God express to God all the different postures we find ourselves in as human beings. But also, as we do that, they form us to be people who pray in response to the situations of our life, right? So the Psalms are for expression and form formation. Psalm 87 is a song about Zion, which is the city of God. You may have heard that word before. Many people have sung uh, all kinds of songs about Zion. Lauren Hill sang about it on the Fuji's record, right? <laughs> Bob Marley sang about Zion. Zion in the story of the Old Testament is, is the fortified hill on the city of Jerusalem. In the story of the Bible, it becomes the symbol of the ultimate city of God, the dwelling place of God, the symbolic reality. If you remember the story of Israel, of course, they were trapped under the oppression of slavery in Egypt, and the Lord restored them. Right And brought them back into the land of Canaan and then raised up kings like David and Solomon to build his temple on Zion, on the hill. Right, But our psalm today begins with a certain priority about this place. It is that Zion belongs to the Lord. Zion is the Lord's. The psalm in Hebrew is more like a spoken word slam poetry kind of thing. It's more like a rap. It doesn't actually supply a lot of the verbs that our English translation does. So literally, if I were to read you the first line of this psalm in Hebrew, it would just be like this. His foundation upon hills of holiness, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. I like that. And what that verse says is that Israel did not just wander into a place through their own navigation or vision or dream. They were shown the place of God's dwelling. It wasn't a holy place because Israel founded it and they were a holy people. It was a holy place because the Lord had founded it and blessed it with his presence. God did not consecrate something that the people founded and just called it a holy or exceptional nation. Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. God did not just consecrate something that the people founded and called exceptional it was exceptional because God is exceptional. It was holy because of him, not because of them. After all, they were trapped in the darkness of slavery in Egypt and it was the Lord who restored them. And that's why God would tell them later on in the book of Deuteronomy, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord chose you and set his love on you. For you were the littlest among all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and he was keeping his promises to your fathers that he brought you to this place, right? 
the motivating reality between, behind God bringing people to the place where he dwells is his love. Because God loves to dwell with his people, all of his people that he has created. Let that sink into you. The Lord loves his dwelling place. The Lord loves the place that he sets apart for his people. The Lord loves to be in communion with his people. And the scriptures take this idea of a place and they carry it forward. If you know the book of Hebrews chapter 12, after the Gentiles have come in, after the gospel has gone out to all nations, the writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The apostle Paul called Jerusalem the people of God's mother. All right, he said that, Jerusalem was a mother of freedom. The people of God are to find their origin story together in the liberating, mothering city called Jerusalem, which is opposed to the imperial cities of our world that dominate, exploit, enslave, and kill. I think that so many of our cross-cultural issues historically and presently in our context have stemmed from a historic and deep, deep syncretism of the Christian faith to imperial, nationalistic, economic, and cultural agendas. And the wounds and damage and malformation that that has caused still are with us today, regardless of how personally we participated with those agendas. The wounds are still there, and they cry out for repair and transformation, for resurrection healing. It is essential to follow Jesus in the context of the place where you are, to do theology in that context. And to do theology in this context is to do it in the context of white supremacy. It just is. It's to do it in the context of the whole heritage of Euro-colonialism, period. Other countries and other parts of the world, other contexts, they have their own stories to work out. But this is our story that has profound ripple effects. That legacy of white is right, white is normal, and we need to fight for whiteness is not far from us. I just want to be real. It's in the news cycle this week. The Buffalo shooter last weekend that we lamented together, what was he motivated by? He was motivated by something called replacement theory. I don't know if y'all read about that this week. But this conspiracy and fear that white people are being replaced. And so we need to fight for that. And that's obvious for us, right? We're like, okay, that is obviously white supremacy, but this conspiracy defensive thinking is not unknown in church contexts as well. It's not unknown in all sorts of political contexts right now with all of the hysteria around critical race theory. I'm just going to be, I'm going to make it plain for y'all today because I believe spiritually it's undergirded by the same fear and same desire for power and control, which is ultimately a fear driven by what happens if we're not in control culturally anymore as the norm. We are surrounded by those, by that story. That's the context in which we're, we're doing this work. And that's why it's vital, and I, and I truly believe spiritually healing and beneficial to decolonize our theology, to de-Eurocentrize our theology. Now, that doesn't mean European people are bad. They have a place in the story of the Lord, but it's a place in a beautiful mosaic of God's people. We have to be healed from that notion and fill our minds and our souls and our hearts with this biblical and orthodox understanding that the Lord, it's the Lord's city. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that we are citizens of, ultimately. 
It is the Lord's laws that we're supposed to live by ultimately. It's the Lord's mission that we're supposed to fulfill ultimately. It's the Lord's dwelling place that we are supposed to love and prioritize above any others. And it's our family of every tribe and tongue nation that we are supposed to be loyal to first and foremost to find it more beautiful. And so the psalmist in great excitement says about this city, he says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And what are the glorious things that are going to be spoken about the city of God? Well, that question, that's the question that the rest of the psalm answers. And really the glorious thing about God's city is who's going to be there. And these verses answer that question. So that was the place. And secondly, I want to talk about a people. The psalmist says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Now the speaker of the psalm is God himself. And he begins to roll off his tongue the nations that are all around Israel. Kind of the the nations in this list are, are, are Israel's neighbors regionally. It reminds me, this psalm does, of the opening ceremonies of our Olympic Games, right? When all the nations of the earth are paraded uh, through the great Colosseum and and their nation's name is announced and they have colors and and garb to mark out their national uh, cultural identity. And it's this kind of procession of nations and ethnicities that are all being welcomed into the city of God. But unlike the Olympics, these nations are not in competition with one another. They're finding their equal footing in the family of God. And, and, and God says, among those who know me, not even among those who fear me, but knowing God is an intimacy. And God's saying, all these different kinds of people know me, and I find glory in them. Can I just say that the Lord loves culture, and he created the diversity of humanity and culture in his image. What is culture? Simply put, we could, we could have a whole sermon about it, but it's just patterns of thinking, patterns of speaking, patterns of doing, power, patterns of making through which a given people organize their world. That's what culture is. Some cultures take steel and they make pipe organs out of it. Some make steel drums and some, some make gamelans, all right? <laughs> Same materials, but human culture shape things in different ways. Human culture is outward and visible with things like dress and food and language, but it's also deeper, too. It's, it's values around expectations of family, individualism versus communalism, child-rearing, emotional expression in worship, our relationship to time, how we expect people to be punctual or loose based on a linear time clock. I know I got some cultural analysts out there in the room. And there are broad culture generalizations and specific ones. We can talk about Thai culture, but we could also talk about this specific city in Thailand or this specific this class of people. We could talk about the southern United States or the northern United States. And the Lord is glorified by the beautiful mosaic of all of it. Pastor Duke, you know, uh, the pastor of Grace Meridian Hill, and sometimes we other pastors like to call him the Twitter bishop. He tweeted this week, he just said, it feels important to reiterate something that's quite basic, that God delights in the ethno-cultural diversity of his image bearers, that he is more greatly glorified because of that diversity, and that his people in their perfected state will reflect that diversity for all eternity. All right? Amen. We need to remind ourselves of this, that this is not some pie-in-the-sky, utopia, humanistic vision. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And of this list of nation, it's, it's fascinating because God mentions Rahab, which is the poetic name for the, for the empire of Egypt, and God mentions Babylon. And that's striking because if you know the Old Testament story, you know that Egypt and Babylon are the two chief oppressors of Israel. And still, it's right here in the book of Psalms. And then there's Philistia and Tyre, who usually Israel's at war with as well. And then there's Cush, a farther out nation, Ethiopia, really is what Cush is. So what you have is this picture of the entire known earth to an Israelite, all coming in to the city of God. And so this psalm becomes prophetic like much of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is always busting at the seams to let the nations in, to get the nations in on the relationship to the creator God who made them, right? Into the gates of the kingdom. And we know on this side of the cross and resurrection how this city is going to come and happen is through the new covenant of Jesus Christ. For, D for Jesus doesn't just come to forgive and redeem individual people's sins. Now he does. Let's not depersonalize the gospel, amen? It's good that, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and your sins, was res resurrected for your justification and my justification, amen? But Ephesians 1.10 says that Jesus came as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things on heaven and in earth. What else can that mean by, but everything is the Lord's? And that Jesus is on a mission to heal all of life. So many times, uh, pastors like me have been told to just preach the gospel and not address social concerns, right? But in light of this verse, we are just preaching the gospel when we preach about social and communal concerns because it is nothing less than Jesus' will to unite everything on heaven and earth, to heal everything and, and, and see shalom and righteousness flow through every single relationship and every single society across the earth, period. When we embrace this gospel, we don't have to make distinctions then between spiritual concerns and material concerns because all of life is Christ's concern. And the resurrection is the beginning of this new creation. And the Holy Spirit comes down on the church to fill this new body with holy, divine, living breath and power. And immediately in the story of the New Testament, cross-cultural life and love and beauty and struggle begin to appear. If you have the eyes to see it in the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts, even in the Gospels, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, cross-cultural dynamics are everywhere. Almost every single epistle that's written in the New Testament is trying to deal with a cross-cultural conflict, right? Because there's a profound struggle to live in harmony across lines of deep difference, culturally, religiously, ethnically. And it's beyond de debate that the earliest labors and struggles for the early church to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus was to live cross-cultural life and love out in their place. So if you go to the book of Acts chapter 6, you will find a, a big cross-cultural conflict and the healing of that conflict between Jewish Israelite leaders and Hellenistic Greek widows who felt that they weren't being properly served. And they raised a protest, and the Israelite leaders had to listen to them, or chose to listen to them, I should say, and then elected Hellenistic leaders to help them with their concerns, right? If you go to Acts chapter 13, when it lists out the leadership of the church of Antioch, it lists them by all their ethnicities, by where they come from class-wise. The New Testament doesn't hide from ethnic identity. It doesn't uh, subscribe to color blindness, 
cultural blindness, economic blindness. No, it names it all. But what the New Testament shows is that the mere diversity of a church or a city doesn't in itself ensure anything. Last year, Pastor Russ and I were, were in training together to become qualified obsessors of something called the Intercultural Development Inventory, which is a tool used to assess what strategies individuals and communities use when they encounter cultural difference. So Pastor Russ and I thought that as pastors of a cross-cultural community, it would be good for us to <laughs> go through that training. And during one of those trainings, the teacher, Newa, he began one module with a question on Zoom, okay? This was like a Zoom training where the facilitator is like, all right, here's the icebreaker question. Type your response into the chat box. I know everyone on this call, I mean, <laughs> everyone in this service, everyone on this call. Uh, so he put out this prompt and he just said, diversity creates blank, all right? And so people began typing into the chat box everything that you would start typing in, I'm sure, which is something like wholeness, beauty, uh, unity. So the chat fills up with all that over and over again. And then the facilitator looked at the other teacher and he said, oh, we failed them because they all got it wrong. He said the correct answer is this, diversity creates nothing. It is how we choose to relate to and navigate and steward that diversity that can create the possibility of beauty, wholeness, and unity across that diversity. That's what our moments of cross-cultural struggle and our profound uh, cultural moments show us. The substance of our cross-cultural life is more important than the optics of our cross-cultural life, right? And when you choose to focus on the substance rather than the optics of cross-cultural cultural dynamics, then you're going to find that there's a lot of gaps. <laughs> there's a lot of woundedness, and there's a lot of opportunity for growth and transformation, all right? Recently, I had this experience where I met the mother of one of my son's friends from school. I was having a birthday party. She came, and she brought her son. She is a Latina woman who really mostly speaks Spanish. And as we meet, I throw out my first few greetings that I know, all right? I'm not, I'm not very good at Spanish at all. So I, I throw out my first few greetings and, uh, that I got up my sleeve, and her face lights up because she was just known in that moment, like for someone to be conversing with her in her own language. But we reached a point very quickly where I ran out of phrases. And I didn't even know how to say, I couldn't go any further, but her face and my face sort of had that moment of like, oh yeah, I can't go past this point with you. And I reflected on it because for the rest of the night, she pretty much withdrew from the social group because linguistically that barrier was there. And she, in my perception, grew kind of crestfallen. And so she was isolated from that point on. Maybe you've had that experience a lot. Maybe you've been on the other side of that experience too, right? Where you think someone might know you and be able to resonate with you culturally or linguistically and then all of a sudden, nope, they don't actually know. I'm naming that dynamic because it's very important. That gap right there, the gap that we face when we're having cross-cultural relationships is all over the place. And the question is, what are we gonna do about that gap? Now I have different choices of how I could respond. First, I could maybe respond with defensiveness to this woman, I could say, well, I'm an American, and you know, the dominant language we speak here is English, and if this person's going to become part of my culture, then they have to adapt, because that's how I slash we do things. And you see that response a lot in our broader culture, right? 
and in the church. That response can be outwardly sweet and kind, but ultimately the response says this, we aren't going to change who we are and how we do things just to accommodate you. It's a, it's a defensive posture. I can choose to just ignore that difference that there. I can, I, I can choose to ignore that gap. I can be ashamed of that gap and just sort of be stuck there. I can choose to be stuck in my lack of ability to relate across lines of cultural difference. But what I want to say is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ always leaves the door open to transformation. It means when I come into gaps of cultural understanding, I can choose to move across that gap and say, how can I meaningfully move in the midst of that gap to grow, to learn, and ultimately to practice love, right? There are some goals that I could set that could range from less costly to more costly. I could read books and watch documentaries about Latin America. I could find the specific context where this woman comes from, the country that she comes from. I could start reading uh, books, watching documentaries, reading Latin American literature. Or I could commit to more costly and substantive patterns of life, right? I could decide that I'm going to learn the language because I keep running into this gap over and over again. God keeps putting people into my path where I experience that gap, and it's an invitation. Right? So I could join a Spanish language class and commit to close that gap. I could commit to certain relationships. I could go to certain restaurants where I'm going to run into that gap over and over again that I might grow in the place of formative relationship. And as I make those changes, I'm committing myself to a resurrection love that doesn't just make peace with, that's just the way things are. That's just the way the world is. Those gaps are all over the place when you pursue cross-cultural community. They have to do with historical ignorance sometimes. They have to do with those deep cultural difference about child rearing, about expectations, right? And those gaps are invitations to communion with one another. Those gaps are invitations to transformation. But here's the reality. My son's friend's mother, she doesn't have the luxury of saying, I'm just not going to do anything. People who are marginalized in our culture have to make all sorts of adaptive choices to survive. The question is that on the line of cultural difference, are we who are not on the margins going to choose to move into the gap for the sake of love of neighbor or not? And obviously, people of God, you, we can't do this with every single cross-cultural interaction possible. But what I want to ask you is, who is the Lord putting in your path, in your community, in your interactions that are asking you to move into a place of resurrection, transformation, love, right? And to be a mature cross-cultural community that we strive to be, we have to embrace a journey metaphor of cross-cultural competence. And what do I mean? I mean, in so many areas of our life, like if we're talking about our honesty or how much we gossip or how we show anger or how much we pray, I, I can go to people as a pastor and people say, yeah, I really want growth in this area. You know, what will that look like? I understand I haven't arrived yet. But we can often struggle to apply that to our cross-cultural competence, living in community. We have to embrace the fact that we aren't there yet. In no way have we arrived. We have room to grow. And that the New Testament shows us that actually a big part of living out the mission of God's people across the world is living more deeply into our harmony and unity as God's people. It is not a, an agenda that is cultural. It is an agenda that is biblical, right? But this journey requires a lot of patience. 
Many people get hyped up about living cross-culturally, and rightfully so, as my wife said to me this week. But she said the work and call of living cross-culturally in light of the resurrection is urgent, but it cannot be rushed. It's slow, lifelong, requires patience and grace. I love that word. We always talk about at Mosaic that spiritual formation is a crock pot or a Dutch oven. It is not a deep fryer. We can't reach places of amazing cross-cultural competence overnight. It's a journey. But the key is, are we committed to the journey or not? Or are we stagnant? And we want to be a, a community that's committed to the journey, to live in light of the resurrection in this way. We want to be a community that practices cultural self-awareness, all right? Because what the evidence shows us is that the more we are able to articulate our own culture, our own background, where we come from, the deeper we can relate along lines of cultural difference. So I just want to put a plug in here. We offer an assessment as pastors of this church called the IDI, which is an assessment to lead you into greater cultural self-awareness. And I think it's, it's super, super helpful, I'm, to be honest with you. But we also want to be a community that practices cultural other awareness, to be mindful and attentive to the cultural interactions in our church and in our place. So Pastor Russ and I have put together a couple of resource lists in the last two years, resources for cross-cultural understanding, resources for cross-cultural living. I also want to link uh, Elder Kenny's four-part blog series, Advancing Gospel Reconciliation. Amen. So I'm just reminding you of these things. I'm stirring us to further growth because this is part of tilling and caring for the garden uh, that the Lord has placed us in together. So there is a place that God has brought a people into by his grace, a myriad of different kinds of people, and why and to what end is God bringing these people together? Well, evidently, as I close and my last point is for a party. It's for a party. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Mm. Where do you find singers and dancers? Well, you find them at a party or evidently at a worship service too. Amen? And all of these singers and dancers from all these different places are coming together and are praising God in one unified voice. And what are they saying to the Lord? They're saying, all my springs are in you meaning the source of everything I have is sourced in you, oh God. What are springs for? Springs represent cleansing and springs represent nourishing. In this journey of cross-cultural love and worship, our source of cleansing is the stream of the Lord's love. Our source of nourishment and growth is the power of the Holy Spirit, the spring of love. And that, of course, this is the vision that we were given today in our New Testament reading of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, at, that you have ransomed a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and made them a kingdom together. And I understand that there is cynicism and struggle around this whole idea of cross-cultural ministry, but here's what I cannot get around and what I have never been able to escape is that this is the vision of the kingdom of God. Revelation 5, Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, nation, Psalm 87, this is the vision. And what does Jesus teach us to pray every single day? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What did Jesus pray the night before he was supposed to, before he was going to accomplish what he came to do? He said, The glory that you have given to me, I've given to my people, that they may be one, even as you and I are now one, Father. I and them, and you and me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. The goal of the people of God is to be one, just as God is one. God is three and God is one. God is the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. We are a people of all sorts of different places, uh, cultural formations, but the goal is oneness but not sameness, all right? The goal is not toleration or a mere making of space. The goal is mutual love and glorification and celebration of the beauty of one another. Not just making room, but highlighting, magnifying, rejoicing, in the gifts that we all bring to this place. I like the illustration of harmony. The Bible says in this New Testament community to live in harmony with one another. Harmony is the blending of several different notes, right? So a C major seven chord will have a C, an E natural, a G natural, and a B natural. Now, harmony doesn't lose each of those individual notes. They still make their individual sound, right? But when you blend them together, you have a beautiful harmony, a C major seven chord. So one note cannot look at another and say, that's not how you're supposed to sound. Sound like me instead. Intercultural life and love, cross-cultural life and love leads us to seek the flourishing of each individual note in the chord. Amen? Maybe that's emotional expression, humor, language, child-rearing, communal values, worship expression, emotional expression, relationship to time, values about things, everything, to truly learn to rejoice in one another and love the people that God has placed us among. Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince, in his book, Beautiful Community, which I know some of you have read, he says this, he says, both the dazzling diversity of humanity and our need for community are a fundamental aspect of the image of God. God is the apex of unchanging beauty as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternally existent, mutually glorifying, loving, honoring, and supporting diverse community. As his people, when we are mutually glorifying, speaking, and acting in ways that enhance the reputations of one another, striving to be, bring praise and honor to others, exhibiting a mutual deference, a willingness to serve one another, submit to one another, especially across lines of difference, we are imaging God's beauty. This is the family that the Lord has brought us into, and it's a beautiful community. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.